Liz Cord. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful, beautiful Thursday. We are so happy to have you. Per usual, nothing's changed. We're still just so, we're elated, even. Yeah, we have a historical case for you guys today, which you know, I feel like we don't always cover them, but when we do, we are just able to find a lot more information than you would expect. It's a murder, as you can tell by the title, and yeah, we found some really interesting information. It's very sad, it's very fascinating at the same time, um, but yeah, we, we try to do historical cases here and there when we can, because it's so fascinating how there's so much information when you really would expect there wouldn't be. Right. And I think it's really interesting, too, because every time we do a historical case, I feel like 82% of the time their names are Mary. Yeah, right? Honestly. And we have more historical cases on our master list, and I feel as though they're also named Mary. So for a second, it's like, did we already cover this? No, no, no. They just all are named Mary. (laughs) So if you were thinking that same thing, don't worry. This is a different person. She died a different way. And it is very fascinating because it has some weird players, that is for sure, and involves a pretty thorough investigation, to be quite truthful. And we were very lucky to be able to find quite a bit of documentation and some thorough law documents as well, which was a steal in terms of research. And I loved it. Totally. Harvard came in clutch. Oh, yeah. For this episode. Before we get into it, we have something else we want to address really quick. Yeah. So back when we had done our 92nd episode, the murder of Deandra Florucci, we had been saying we had her last name spelled incorrectly and we said it incorrectly throughout the whole episode. We were saying it as Fiorucci but it's actually Florucci with an L. Mm -hmm. Um, We have since changed the spelling, you know, updated the title of the episode, updated the website, all of that. But we did just want to point out and address, we fucked up. Mm -hmm. We were saying it wrong. We had it spelled wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the information we had also spelled it wrong, which that's kind of what happened, but still not really an excuse. No. And yeah, we definitely could have had more good information on that case, especially about Deandra. Yeah. Because we were seeing from our sources that misspelling, we were just using that misspelling. And of course, now that we know the correct spelling, which is Florucci, not Fiorucci, there's more information that you can find about her, the individual person who was the victim of a homicide, and the story. You can find more information, which is good. You should be able to find that stuff. And now, of course, we know. We just really want to correct that because we got her name wrong and that's unfair to her story and to her case. So totally. Yeah. And we had actually gotten a message from someone who knew Deandra. Um, we'll keep them anonymous, but we had gotten some extra information about Deandra, which was really, really helpful Mm -hmm. in our episode. We shared that she was into poetry. She also was really into music and theater. Very, very talented. Sounds like it. Yeah. And then there were a couple things that were clarified to us from the episode. So in the episode, we had said that this guy had come into the school and, you know, we weren't really sure what his deal was. 
it seemed like he just kind of blended in, but we weren't sure. He had been selected purposely by Dana, who was the perpetrator, mm -hmm. because this man, Don, had recently graduated from the high school. So it wasn't really a big issue of him being there mm -hmm. because, of course, he blended in and he also was recently a graduate. Right. So he fit right in. That's kind of why it wasn't a big deal for the vice principal as well. And this is what Dana wanted. They also did not drive to the second location. They walked. It was a half mile up the road from the school to Dana's home. And part of why Deandra had gone there was because she was promised a large amount of drugs. Mm -hmm. Dana was also just absolutely unhinged. Um, there was a whole situation where he was in love with someone who was obsessed with Deandra. And so that's why he targeted her. Mm -hmm. And this person that he was in love with had a strong resemblance to Justin Bieber, which you guys, if you listen to the case, this man went on to have a whole plot with Justin. It was a whole thing. It yeah. was a whole thing. He was obsessed with Justin Bieber. He wanted to cut off Justin Bieber's penis and sell it. And he was just a very psychotic individual and had some very strange motives. It was a, it was a whole thing. And it also really is shitty that it developed that way because this whole thing with Justin Bieber took away from the fact that this beautiful 15 year old girl was murdered mm -hmm. and it really shook up the whole town. Her friends were just absolutely devastated. And you know, this whole thing that transpired with the perpetrator going after Justin Bieber and this whole thing, it just, it really led to a lot of dramatics around the case and just kind of buried the fact that Deandra was murdered. She was a victim. She was 15. Yeah. Um, and she was just a really incredible girl and just was very, very, very well loved, which was very obvious by mm -hmm. the message we received and the kind words about her from someone who was close to her. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And of course, as we know, with a lot of people who maybe have a history of drug use or maybe considered like a vulnerable lifestyle, they sometimes can have less sympathy from people who are into true crime for yeah. whatever reason. I don't understand that. They're humans just like we are. So sometimes I think her story, as well as many others, can be swept under the rug. And then plus this whole Justin Bieber thing, I think there was not a lot of light shining down on her case. But, you know, with this correction of her last name, and we want to make sure that we correct that and inform everyone that her name was Deandra Florucci and that she was only 15 when she was murdered. And she was like you said, Katie, by all accounts, very kind, smart, talented, wonderful girl who was obviously very well loved and lost her life unfairly, unnecessarily by a man who was psychotic and absolutely unhinged. Yeah, so we just wanted to take the time to address that, that that was pointed out to us, um, and that we have corrected everything on our social media website, etc. And a huge thank you to the person that was close with her for pointing that out to us. And, you know, that way we had the opportunity to fix our mistake and address it on an intro before we get into the bulk of this episode. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we just wanted to take the time and address that correction and say another thank you to the friend of Deandra for pointing that out to us. Yes, thank you very much. And we apologize, of course. And with that, now we'll get into our case at hand today. As you can see, like we said, the murder of Mary Knight, historical case of another Mary which I think is just the name of the 1800s, which is fine. I wouldn't name my kid Mary now, probably because it might mean she'll be murdered, but at least we know now. <laughs> and without further ado, 
Today, we will be covering The Murder of Mary Knight. Okay, Katie, let's start with your sources today. I have information from The Sun Journal, touringmainhistory.wordpress, Find a Grave, Curiosity Library Harvard, and The New York Times. Awesome. I had an article from Main History News, The Sun Journal as well. I used the Curiosity Collection from the Harvard Library as well. I used the blog post from Tumbleweed's Tripod and an excerpt from History of Poland, a book published in 1890. Wow. Mm. All right. Mm -hmm. It was great. All right. Let's start off how we usually do with a historical case, as best we can with giving a background. Luckily, we have a little bit of information. And by a little bit, I mean four sentences, baby. Mary Polly Pratt was born sometime in 1794 in Hebron, Maine. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so sorry. She was born to parents Luther and Theodora. Classic. You don't see those names anymore. Not at all. She was one of eight children. Not much is known about Mary's childhood, of course. And that's not super weird, since she was living, you know, her life as a woman in the early 19th century. But we can speculate that she was probably learning how to sew and cook and clean and maintain a household. So what we do know is when she got a little bit older, she married a man named Solomon Knight. And together they moved themselves to Poland, Maine. Yes, Maine has many, many towns that are named after countries. Poland, Denmark, Paris. South I know Paris is in a country. South Paris. You have Mexico. You have China, Maine. There's a whole bunch. Together, the pair had six children. Some sources say four, but more often than not, I saw six. Same. In the year 1840, when she was 46 years old, unfortunately, her husband Solomon died. Unsure how he died. Could have been literally anything. And whatever their reasoning was, it probably was something very broad, like consumption or attack of the brain stem. Something so, like, they don't know what it was. This, of course, left her a widow at a pretty difficult age because, you know, the main goal of marrying a woman at this time was to have babies. So she could totally remarry, but only if she could find a man who was satisfied with not having any kids or any more kids because she was obviously, like, done having kids. She was 46. But Mary was lucky because for uh, whatever reason, she had someone ready to marry her right away. And that was uh, Solomon, her dead ex-husband's little brother, George, George Knight. He was approximately half her age. So as I just said, Mary was 46. George, little Georgie Porgy, he was 23 years old. And I don't know why, I don't know why he wanted to marry Mary so bad. Maybe it was like this familial urge to help his brother out. I don't know. But... He married her right away. And well, they were married for quite some time. Now, George was described as being weird. He was described as having a nervous temperament. He was described as being restless. Somehow this was sexy to a lot of ladies because I guess he was known as a flirt around town. I don't really find that attractive so much, but I guess it was the thing back then. 
And he was even reported joking around as early as like pretty soon after marrying Mary that he was ready to quote, trade her in for a newer model. Now, I don't know if how quote unquote that is, but he was implying pretty early on that he was looking forward to having a younger wife sometime. So that's kind of bizarre. But like I said, they ended up being married for quite some time, at least 10 plus years, because the incident we're going to talk about today happened in 1856. So they were married for quite some time. Whether it was happy or not, unclear. I'm going to go ahead and speculate with not really, considering their age gap. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty big deal. And also the fact that she was originally married to his brother and also all of her kids. And now his stepchildren were his nieces and nephews. It's a little weird. Like you said, Liz, it is now 1856, and at this time there were seven people living in a little house just east of Trip Pond in Poland, Maine. There was, of course, Mary and George, the not-so-happy couple, George's elderly mother, Lydia Knight, a 13-year-old servant girl named Hannah Partridge, a 10-year-old indentured servant named Sidney Barrel, Mary's first child from a separate marriage, Harriet Jordan, and a 17-year-old employee of the family named Dennis Bragdon. Now, on this night in question, Harriet and Dennis were not home, but everybody else was under that same roof. According to Hannah Partridge, George Knight left sometime after 7 p.m. on October 6, 1856, to carry a load of shingles to Gray, Maine, on a cart pulled by oxen. He said that he would be away until morning. A neighbor named Israel Herrick said that George showed up at his house at around 8.40 p.m. to pick up the shingles, and then he had loaded them up within a couple hours and headed off down the dirt road. The next time that George was seen was after midnight, when two neighbors caught up to him as he got closer to Gray. The neighbors were, like, out of breath. They were sweaty. They were red in the face. They were hauling ass to catch up to him. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we have to catch up to George. We have to catch him before he makes a delivery. Mm-hmm. There's been an emergency. Yeah. And they tell George that his wife had been murdered. That is insane. And, you know, you must be thinking a whole bunch of things, probably. A, why is he making an errand so late at night? Good question. B, why is he making an errand being pulled by just oxen? Wouldn't that take a long time? Also a good question. Probably just me having that thought, but maybe that's just because I'm interested in animals. C, you probably are also thinking, what tragedy? He's probably going to just fall apart. This is awful. Like, finding out you're, you're on an errand, an overnight errand, and being... People, you know, your neighbors are catching up with you, you know, some like 10 miles away, out of breath. And they're like, oh my God, George, I'm so sorry to bring you this news. Your wife, she's dead. It's awful. It's very sad. So why, tell me, Katie, why did George, why, just why did George, just why? So you would think that George would like fall to his knees be crying, yelling, no, my beautiful wife, why? No. No. No, he uh, strolled 
into town with his oxen and finished his delivery. Mm. Very casually, you know, almost unbothered. Kind of like, thank you for passing along the message, gentlemen. Tapping his watch. I got some business, though. I'm on a tight schedule. But uh, thank you, and I'll be around shortly. What? Your wife was just murdered. Like, murdered. They didn't say she died. They said she was murdered. That's way... Mur- like, brutally murdered. And he was like, Hmm, I see. All right, then. I'll be on my way. What? Wild. Sir. But finally, it took some convincing. The messengers were able to get George to head back to the house. And again, it shouldn't have had to take some convincing. He should have been like, out of my way. I'm going. And then made the oxen run or something. No, he instead had to finish his delivery or whatever. And then finally he was like, all right, my duties here are done. I'm a man of my word. What? And so he and the messengers rode back to his home in Poland. But don't worry. The messengers, fully prepared to have to calm him, keep him completely in line. Nope. They just, in amazement, a sad amazement, were like, what the fuck is happening? Because George, the whole way, was talking about current events, his job, taxes. And they were like, what is, what? He didn't show an iota of sadness. Could you say he was shocked? Maybe. But um, I don't think the shock even was like in yet because he hadn't seen anything. He didn't know the details. All he knew was his wife had been murdered. But I think his brain was like, no, must complete delivery. I am good businessman. What? This guy, I just can't. I'm picturing him as like a really weird guy. Almost like wearing a Scrooge outfit, you know, when he's in his pajamas with a little nightcap <laughs> in a nightie. I don't know why. And like the one candle yeah. and the little holder thing. I have no idea why. Maybe because it's in the middle of the night when he's doing this <laughs> stupid errand. He says it's because he wanted to go in the middle of the night because he was taking advantage of the full moon, quote unquote. Which like, really, man? Really? You fucking weirdo. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh my god. And so finally... George and his messengers, who are very confused and concerned and, like, a little suspicious but also confused because, like, how could have George been involved because he was all the way over here, were like, okay, here, here she is. They arrive back home to Poland and inside the house, they show George his deceased wife. And it is here we discover how brutally Mary has been murdered. 61-year-old Mary Knight was found lying on her side in a pool of blood. Her throat had been slit from ear to ear to the point where she was almost decapitated. It was bloody. The window to the outside was opened and the sash of fabric that normally covers it was hanging at an angle. Once the neighbors got there initially, you know, they heard screaming, they heard commotion, they ran. Sidney Verrill, the indentured servant, had you know, heard her screaming and seen the scene and ran and got help. More on that later. Mm -hmm. But the neighbors got there and they're like, wow, did Mary kill herself? Right. And then they took in the whole scene and pretty quickly came to the conclusion, the same conclusion that the coroner did, Mm -hmm. 
that this was murder. Right. And it would make sense that George was very quickly named the prime suspect. You always, always, always think of the husband. Correct. Especially once rumors started spreading around town. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the 1850s. With most of our historical cases, rumors fly. There's nothing else going on. The cows don't need milking until morning. Right. You know, hot gossip. Let's do it. Yeah. So it was known that George was a pretty successful businessman. One source actually described him as being shrewd. Oh. So the whole Scrooge image definitely makes sense. Nice. People were spreading rumors that he was going around and trying to bribe witnesses. And that he had hidden a bloody knife. And these rumors really began taking off once his own story about the events of the night kept changing. Mm -hmm. It was very inconsistent. And, you know, everyone was kind of recalling that, wow, George is a lot younger than his wife, Mary, who is 61. He was literally going around town flirting with the ladies and looking for a replacement for his old, ailing, and decrepit wife. Yeah. It did not help his case that at the funeral the next day, George's behavior was described as, quote, obscene jest in frivolity and laughter. And this whole thing does not exactly scream grieving husband. No. Not at all. You know, some people laugh when they're nervous. Some people use humor as a coping mechanism. Like, as we all know, you and I, Liz. Of course. Whole basis of this podcast. Sure. But this is just taking it to a whole nother level. He is not coping. He is just acting very bizarre and honestly erratic. Yeah. Very. George appeared before three lawyers, one of whom was a man named Edward L. Little from Auburn, Maine. Attorney C.W. Goodard laid out the case against him, and this panel of the three lawyers he appeared before all agreed that they should hold George without bail until his trial in a few months. He remained out of jail in Portland, Maine, while they finished construction on the Androscoggin County Courthouse and the attached jail. And once this opened, George was transferred to Auburn, and he arrived there on February 7th, 1857. They described him as being five foot four in the record book at this jail, with a light complexion and a heavier build, and that he was being charged with the murder of his wife. Mm. Maybe his shortness made him angry and sad. You know what? I yeah, there there may be something to that, honestly. His shortness, his stoutness. Honestly, like a little bit. His shrewdness. His shrewdness. <laughs> his scrooge likeness, perhaps. So now that George was in jail and they kind of were like looking into, of course, what had happened, we kind of got more of the details from people around and the people who lived in the house as kind of what was going on before Mary had died. So unfortunately for Mary, around the time before she died, like a few months before, she had started to become ill. And that's not super uncommon. I mean, it's the 1850s and she's getting up there. She's now like in her 60s, you know, early 60s, but still she's done her time. She's had a lot of kids. So she started to struggle with issues regarding her stomach and her bowels, which totally sucks. And a lot of these problems were sudden episodes of violent stomach pains, which is awful. She had several weeks of random bouts of vomiting, which included vomiting froth, which is scary. And terrible stomach pains. And Mary kind of began to come up with a theory that was honestly a little terrifying. Was she being poisoned? Dun dun. 
So Mary had actually been taken care of by a few physicians, and a lot of times back then physicians came and did house calls. So she had a new doctor, Dr. Josiah Carr of Mechanic Falls, and he came and, you know, she shared with him this fear that she was being poisoned, and he was like, meh, maybe a little. And so he started to give her some treatments, and, you know, they were working, and then they weren't working, and then they were working, and then they weren't. It was like a very poisony kind of situation. But honestly, a lot of times women are the one that poison. So it's like, oh, very suspicious. That's what I was thinking of this whole time. I was like, oh. And we kind of learned thanks to some evidence later and, you know, doing this investigation that Mary had been writing letters to one of her daughters and she kind of revealed that maybe she thought she was being poisoned and she kind of had a feeling she knew who it was. Let's all take a guess. Ready? Everyone at the same time. If you're in your car, if you're at the gym, you have to say it out loud. Ready? One, two, three. George. George. Good. I hope you said it out loud. <laughs> you probably didn't look weird at all. But anyway, so when it kind of came to light while George was in jail that this fact of having the letter and that she'd been suspicious of being poisoned, that had all come out, they were like, okay, so this is weird. But then they had the whole thing where George was out on an errand. You know, he was taking advantage of the full moon like a werewolf. He had to deliver these shingles. He had to. So how could that make him kill his wife? He wasn't there. He was going to Gray, which was 13 miles away from Poland. So that doesn't add up. He wasn't driving by a car. He was taking oxen in a cart. That's not going to get you to Gray within... 20 minutes. It's going to take you hours. Mm -hmm. So tell me how that works. Exactly. And then we kind of get some details about what happened that night in the home. Because remember, there's a few people living there. George's mother, elderly, Lydia Knight. You have an indentured servant. You have another servant girl who's 13. You know, some witnesses. You have neighbors who were called who heard screaming and ran over. You have the messenger boys who go and get George, who witness his weird behavior. And then you have the physicians who come and do like the autopsies. There's a whole bunch of people around. They're seeing all this very bizarre stuff and they're piecing this puzzle together. And they're like, I don't care if he wasn't theirs, quote unquote. He's so guilty. Like, holy shit. Yeah, and this trial actually took several weeks, but really only because they were covering so much ground. Yeah. It wasn't even so much back and forth, arguing, debating. It was just the fact that this trial was so lengthy because there was so much information that they covered. And they had to call up so many witnesses as well. Hannah, the 13-year-old girl working in the home, testified. She said that she was woken up in the middle of the night by Sydney, the indentured servant, mm -hmm. 10 years old, who said that Mary was going crazy. Mm. Hannah then heard Mary screaming and thought she saw someone walking through the house. Mm. She went over to the bedside table, lit a candle to see better, and came across who she referred to in court documents as the old lady, mm -hmm. which is George's elderly mother, Lydia, who was about in her 80s at this time. Very respectful. They continued to hear Mary screaming, but Lydia said that this was Mary having her fits, a.k.a. nightmares. Yeah. 
Hannah also noted that when she lit her candle, there was just one match left, which is really bizarre because when she had gone to bed, there had been a lot more because she kept them there to light candles because she worked there. Like she needed to be available at all hours. Right. A few minutes later, Sydney then went into Mary's room and found her body. As Hannah was walking out of the home with Lydia and a neighbor who had also heard the screaming, mm-hmm. she noted that the candles she had brought upstairs from the cellar earlier that night were gone. Mm-hmm. She said that it's like her routine. She yep. would go in the cellar, bring up a bunch of candles so that they were all stocked, ready to go. No one's, you know, groping around in the middle of the night, not having anything to see by. Right. And she also said that she had brought up the candles from the cellar just a few minutes before George left the house Mm -hmm. to go on his errand, quote-unquote. Interesting. Candles would be a pretty convenient way to see what you're doing without the light being bright enough to wake someone up when you're sneaking around the house. And it also would be helpful to have candles if, say, a cloud blew over the full moon, perhaps? Ah, I see. When Sydney was interviewed, he said that where he slept was closer to where Mary slept, Mm -hmm. as opposed to Hannah, so he heard her first. Yeah. He first woke up and heard Mary yelling out, let me alone, Mm -hmm. and then heard her saying Hannah's name, but Hannah was in bed asleep. Mm -hmm. After waking up Hannah, he said he wanted someone to go check on Mary in case she was having one of her spells of not feeling well. Sure. You know, the episodes of the stomach pain, the really intense cramping, mm-hmm. the vomiting that she was known to have just very suddenly comes on all at once. Mm-hmm. He said that initially he thought it was one of her spells, mm-hmm. but then almost right away he could tell that it was just different. Like she had never done this before. Mm-hmm. She was acting really, really bizarre. Mm-hmm. And then he had a really bad feeling. He had woken up Hannah already. Okay, someone else is awake. Great. Good. Lydia, the old lady's walking around. Oh, she's just having one of her fits, aka nightmares. So he's like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm running and getting a neighbor Mm -hmm. because I'm 10 years old and I can tell that this shit is sketchy. Mm -hmm. So he went and got a neighbor and the neighbors actually kind of met him halfway. Yeah. Because even from their little home a distance away, they could hear her screaming. Yeah. So like we said, besides the witnesses of the indentured servant, the servant girl, the neighbors that came when they heard the screaming, we had physicians. So including Dr. Josiah Carr, who was Mary's physician with her stomach ailments, he also came to the scene of the crime to do like a postmortem. Same with there was at least three other doctors who testified and came and did a postmortem as well. And they all were talking about the murder scene, the body, everything they saw. They noted the prints, they noted the blood, they noted the wounds, and they were talking really closely about what had been going on in Mary's life, what she had suspected was going on, and then the wounds. The wounds were damning. It was ultimately agreed upon by the physicians, and then later testified upon, that Mary had been cut not once, but twice on her throat. So like you said, Katie, she had been cut so deeply, she was almost decapitated. So yes, there was the insanely deep and long slash across her throat, but there was more of a process to it when it was done. One of the medical examiners going over Mary's body said that the cut on the right side was going on the upper side of the vertebrae, while the cut on the left side was about an inch below the right one, almost joining together in the middle of the second and third vertebrae, as in one cut from one side, one cut from the other, both extremely deep 
This wound was so brutal, it cut her tongue muscle completely in two, which showed directly into the roof of her mouth, and it separated her hyoid bone as well as her esophagus. Whoever had done this was very angry and clearly wanted Mary to suffer. This wasn't something like, uh, like just a little hate, hate crime. This was someone who wanted her to hurt, wanted to make a scene, wanted people to see her and be shocked, wanted everyone to know that she did something wrong, that she was a bad person, that they hated her, whatever. Whatever the message was, they made it for sure. Now, Dr. Carr knew Mary very well because he had been her doctor that was doing house calls and treating her very frequently, like every two to three days or so for the last six to eight weeks before her murder. She was very ill, you know, on and off, seemingly at random. She would be hit with these episodes of like weakness, fatigue, headaches, stomach pain, vomiting. And remember when Mary gave her daughters a letter that said she thought George was poisoning her? Oh, yeah. Hmm. The letter had started with, quote, I believe my husband wants to kill me. Oh. And then went on to describe that he was poisoning her. And then she was convinced that he was making a plan to slit her throat with a razor blade. What? Dr. Carr said that Mary was having her symptoms of illness at least nine weeks before he was called to treat her. And then he was going, you know, every two or three days, he described an incident where he was sent for when Mary was really sick. Like she was severe, severe, severe stomach pain, vomiting. And he stayed with her a while and then checked on her the next day. And she seemed so much better. Yeah. And he was just baffled by this. Like, why is it that she's getting so ill Mm -hmm. having these episodes of vomiting, probably diarrhea, intense stomach cramping. And then, all of a sudden she's recovered Mm -hmm. and Mary was like, Hey, you know, I'm vomiting up the poison probably. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Carr reported that the last day he saw Mary was actually the day of the murder, Mm -hmm. October 6th, 1856. He said that she really seemed like she was doing better. Like she was in good spirits. Mm -hmm. She had energy. She was so happy to hear that the doctor was telling her like, I think you're recovering. Like, I really think that you're on the mend. This is great. And then Dr. Carr was leaving the house, passed by George, who was outside loading the shingles into the cart to deliver them. And he told George the news that his wife was on the mend and would be fine. What a coincidence that on the same day, George learns that Mary is recovered, that she has her throat slit. Hmm. Hmm. So one of the things that now was very apparent, George obviously was in jail while they were investigating. He was being suspected of poisoning her. And now it was like, okay, maybe he was on a errand, but however he did it, he clearly killed his wife. And then not to mention his behavior. So weird. When the messengers went to get him and he was like, no, I have to finish my business. That was weird. On the way back to the house. And he was like, "Mm, well, you know, Taxes, business, horses. What was that all about? That's weird. When he saw his wife dead on the bed, he did not have a reaction that was normal. Okay, this is all really bizarre. So things are really adding up and they're just finding out more and more and more. And you mentioned too, Katie, that he was going around offering people money for alibis. That's fucking suspicious. 
you don't offer people money for alibis if you're innocent. Okay, so, all right. And then we found out some information from some people who were around, you know, looky-loos, who were around at the time of the murder. So after George had seen Mary's body, he suddenly was like, oh, I need to take a walk. I need to clear my head. You know, like, oh, almost seemingly like fake stress. It was here where he decided to, um, you know, clear his head out in a nearby field in which he was walking around very aimlessly in the view of everyone who was there, which of course included the physicians, the police, and reporters, and looky-loos, because it was 1850. Like, everyone was going to be there. And so he kept looking back at the home, and it appeared he was constantly afraid someone was going to be, like, watching him. But he was walking around, you know, clearing his head, whatever, looking stressed, and he was aimlessly walking around this field, and he came to, like, this stone wall, the edge of this field, and it seemed like all of a sudden he just, like, very subtly dropped something. And he probably felt he looked really subtle and, like, cool, but it looked pretty obvious. And uh, supposedly there were these two men that were just hanging out, and they were, like, watching George as he was doing this. Like, that was their thing. They were like, hold on, bro. Like, let's take a look while he's doing this, because this is weird. And so they were doing that, and they watched this whole thing go down. And then when George continued on his aimless walk and walked away and was out of sight, they scrambled over to that stone wall where he had dropped whatever. And wouldn't you know it, there, they found a large butcher knife. Now, this butcher knife was supposedly covered in blood from the blade to the handle with bloody fingerprints. And of course, good on these guys' parts, instead of keeping it for themselves, because that's probably what people do back then, they go to these crime scenes to be invasive and annoying. Right. They quietly handed it to the investigators, and uh, George continued to be like, oh, my wife. I am so stressed about my wife. She died. Oh, she's died. I am so sad. It's like, dude, act better. Like, you suck. And so now we have a potential murder weapon. Which people originally thought was this razor that was on the bed next to Mary. However, as we find out, the razor is closed up and dusty. There's no way it could have been the murder weapon. This was also used in the trial to try and prove from the defense's side that Mary had killed herself. Now, what do we know, listeners, about killing yourself? If you're going to do it like that, there's no way that you can, A, slit your throat with, you slit your own throat with two distinct deep cuts. There's no way you'll make it through the first cut. There's no way. It's the same idea as saying that you killed yourself by shooting yourself in the head and you have two bullet wounds. Abs right. Absolutely. It's bullshit. There's no way. And so they had in the trial these doctors who came and examined the body. They had them all testify and say, is it possible you can kill yourself the way Mary did? Can you slit your own throat? And they were all like, well, she could have walked around for maybe a second or two before she passed out from blood loss, not being able to breathe. Whoever killed her, which it was not herself, cut her so deep, her tongue was cut in half. Her thick tongue muscle cut in half. Her windpipe cut in half. She did not walk anywhere. She was not in charge of cutting her own windpipe buddies. 
Right, exactly. And the fact that the murder weapon was not at the scene, like, there's no way. And this defense was trying to basically say that she, what, slit her own throat, stashed the murder weapon, mm -hmm. and she was also found lying on her side, mm -hmm. copious amounts of blood splatter mm -hmm. on the walls, the ceiling, you know, all around her, the bed. But her face was covered with a pillow. So w they're trying to imply that with one hand, she covered herself with a pillow. Mm -hmm. With the other hand, like, throwing the knife out the window or something. Really, really far. <laughs> yeah, to a stone wall, yep. even. Yep. Yards and yards away mm -hmm. from... No, there's no way. No. And even the neighbors that had stumbled upon the scene in the beginning, when they had heard her screaming and yelling and Sydney had ran and gotten them and they were already on their way, mm -hmm. they noted that the window was open and that the little curtain was ajar mm -hmm. and it had been closed for the night, you know, the whole routine. Yeah. So the scene itself, of course, of course, of course, was suspicious. Yeah. And we know it wasn't the razor. We know it wasn't suicide. She didn't get up and stumble around and there's no way. Yeah. But these doctors are trying to say that while it is possible, in some cases, depending on the wound, right. you might be able to have a cut to your throat and then stumble around in confusion. It was not the case here. No. No way. And then, of course, people were like, well, he was on an errand. How could he have not? Like, there's no way. Well, the prosecution had a theory. And I think it's an okay theory. Mostly because I think he did it. <laughs> but... They said that basically he did go at least start this errand. He went and he hitched his ox into some shrubbery off of this path. And then he ran back or had a horse hitched nearby, ran back, rode back, killed his wife, and then got right back on those oxen and continued on his journey. Wouldn't take very long to kill his wife. And then that would put him, you know, correctly back on the path where the messengers caught up with him. Could happen, for sure, because he did it. A funny part about the knife is that, you know, they were covered by the stone wall where George was like, ah, yawning, and then, like, <laughs> instead of putting his arm around a girl really inconspicuously, he drops the knife and then strolls on back, and yep. they're like, oh, that was really suspicious, but yeah. he tried to play it off as really smooth, but yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. The knife was shown in court, mm -hmm. specifically to Sidney Verrill. Mm -hmm. And Sidney was looking at the knife. He's like, you know what? This is crazy. I have seen this knife before. Like, it's definitely one of ours. Mm -hmm. It belongs in the household. And he said, like, that's crazy. Three weeks before Mary was murdered, I was put in charge by George to sharpen a bunch of the knives. Mm -hmm. And he was, like, sharpening them and putting them aside and, you know, organizing them. And then he noticed that one of the knives he couldn't find. Like, mm -hmm. he had sharpened it along with the others, and then it just disappeared. Yeah. And he said that the knives were so sharp, like, he knew that they were so sharp because he had taken one of them and cut another kid's hair <laughs> to, like, test out how sharp it was. Mm -hmm. And it was a clean... Like, he could have given this kid a haircut. Like, it was yeah, really, yeah. really pristine. Wow. So that's kind of how he tested it. He's mm -hmm. like, okay, I did a really good job with this. Great. You know, let's put the knives away. Mm -hmm. And then he went to go use them or check on them or clean them or whatever. Yeah. And one of them was gone. Right. And now it's sitting before him in court. Right. Covered in blood. Right. Huh. Weird. Hmm. The entire trial took 23 days. And that's mostly because there are so many people testifying. 
In an early March of 1857, after more than 24 hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a guilty verdict for George Knight. It was later revealed that four of the 12 jurors actually had actually initially voted to acquit George, but uh, they changed their mind and decided to lock his ass up. The death sentence was actually a very common punishment back then. You know, it's the 1850s, 1860s. However, Maine was a state that rarely enacted this. Often, the death sentence appeared too harsh for this late into the 19th century Maine, and it just, like, was not handed out, even for a crime this brutal. So, George managed to avoid death penalty. He did. And he was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison. He went to the Maine State Prison in Thomaston, Maine. He arrived there on September 4th, 1857, where he was to serve the rest of his life. On Christmas Day, 1862, the journal reported to its readers that George had sent his payment in for his yearly subscription to the paper from prison. Oh, thank God. Which I think it's so interesting that that's what they're reporting on. Like, everyone is so bored back then. There's nothing to do. What else are they going to do? The journal also reported that George sent his respects to the jailer in Auburn and his wife, and that George was feeling sad that he couldn't have pie in prison. That really sucks, bro. So sorry for you. By 1879, George was the longest serving prisoner in Maine. Wow. In July of 1900, George wrote a letter to a friend where he stated, quote, my health is fair, so I work four to eight hours a day in a vegetable garden, a small one for the prison yard. Over the course of his imprisonment, George called himself a martyr and continued to insist that he was innocent and that he did not kill Mary, and he kept asking for new trials that he did not receive. Yeah. And a few months after he wrote that letter, in the year 1900, at the ripe age of 82, George Knight died. He always maintained his innocence. And that is the very brutal murder of Mary Knight. Yeah. Whew. Just absolutely terrible. The poor woman. And she was really suffering for the weeks up until her death, mm -hmm. being poisoned, most likely. Probably. And she knew it. Yeah. And Mary is actually someone of a local legend, uh, more like her ghost is. A lot of people claim that on back dirt roads near where her old house was in Poland, Maine, mm -hmm. that you can see a ghostly woman in a white dress, because of course, what else would a ghostly woman be wearing? Yep, true. And that she drifts around the road, and most of the sightings have taken place on Route 26, but a lot of people have seen her on other back roads or in a local cemetery. Nice. Of course. Really, really sad. That is very sad. Well, guys, we want to know what you think, as always, but you know how we feel with these historical cases. They are nuts. Do you think George did it? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at truecrimene, all lowercase, or you can send us an email with your thoughts at truecrimene at gmail.com. We, of course, have a website, truecrimene.com. You could go to our contact page, use our handy nanny submission tool to send us questions, comments, concerns, thoughts about this case, other cases we have covered. You can be anonymous if you so choose. You can leave your name if you so choose. If you have a case you would like to suggest to us, you can leave your name. You can be anonymous. We love any and all case suggestions, especially historical ones. If you guys are hearing this one and have one of your own that you'd like to share, 
Otherwise, we hope you enjoyed the episode, and yeah. With that, we'll see you next week. Bye! Goodbye!